that there is something like transcendental. I was like a teenager, so I needed sentence. It never turned out this way. We're probably nothing more than just meat machines for information processing. Welcome everybody to the last episode of season one of BizWords. It's kind of an overused phrase, but we did save the best for last, if you don't mind me saying so. Um, so with us here today, we have a very, very special guest. But before I introduce him by name, I'm gonna, gonna go and try something else. Apparently, our guest today has 49 academic articles published to his or her name. So let's start with the most obvious question. Whoever you are, can you prove to me you're not an AI? and an actual human being, and please try to convince myself in the audience. I can't just prove it to you. Well, the, the only consciousness that I can be certain about is my own consciousness. And that's basically the only thing I can be certain about, because everything else can be just sensory phantoms or something. So nothing can be proven this way. That's what an AI would probably say, like a fantastic non-answer. Um, but anyway, this is deep already. I love it. Um, everybody here in the <laughs> yeah, studio do, is do you have consciousness, <laughs> by the way? I would like to think that I do. But now that I've spoken to you for a grand total of minute and a half, I'm starting to have my doubts. Um, <laughs> so anyway, let, let's kind of so w- Welcome to my world. Alrighty, Cool. Well, well thanks. <laughs> thanks for being with us. Um, I think it's you know time to kind of review who you are. So... Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to actually introduce yourself and you know let the audience decide in the end of this if you're you know an AI phantom or an actual human being. Thanks for inviting me. I'm Jan Romporto. I'm not a robot. I'm <laughs> not an AI. I swear. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> I even don't know how many academic articles I've got. You you found it probably somewhere. Maybe maybe Google. Uh, research, research gate. Research <laughs> gate. Research gate. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My background is and always has been AI and philosophy of mind, uh, AI safety. And so just a brief interaction of, of my story, like first part of my professional story was at a university until 2015 when I was, you know, kind of like head of department somewhere and doing stuff in AI. And then I realized that it's so hard to make any real impact at a Czech university. Mm-hmm. And I'm openly admitting this, even though it's not comfortable truth for many people. So then I decided to go to like to re- business environment. Then I went to can I name the company? Yeah, probably I can. Yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah, I, I went not. to O2 Czech Republic, where I started from scratch with uh, building data science team, big data team. Together with my team, we were able to build very nice AI center, AI center of excellence for the PPF group. That was my uh, second phase of the career until this summer. And this summer, I have made a big decision to leave this nice, cozy, promising environment and to mm-hmm. start a career of my own, like a freelance consultant and fresh startupist. Fresh startupist. So it sounds like you have something in stealth mode. Yeah, still okay. somewhat in stealth mode. Maybe we will get closer <laughs> to it as we will talk about AI ethics and, and social impact and stuff. But okay, okay, okay. Well, there's a lot to unpack here. There's quite a lot of mystery involved in the mm-hmm. show already. Like the ratio of mystery, you know, uh, against the kind of record time is great. But anyway, um, let's kind of step take a step back here. So you've been involved or interested in the topic of AI for decades, essentially. Yeah, yeah. When uh, oh, like already at elementary school, I think. And mm-hmm. it's been decades already, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> In high school, definitely. And then just I, I wanted to go to study AI like for my bachelor's study. So, and since then, I've been involved in that research. Mm-hmm. And then 
always like philosophy was kind of a hobby. So I always were like putting these two things together. Okay. Well, the reason why this kind of strikes me as quite different, uh, I would say uh, quite rare, is that most of the people that I engage with who talk about AI, um, I would say they, they've just entered the field. Uh, they got their minds blown a few years back, maybe by watching a movie, maybe a decade ago. But somebody like you, you've been in this field for quite a long time, probably longer than anyone that I know. So the obvious question is, and I'm not making jokes about your age, right? That's not what that is. But the obvious question, at least to me, is um, how did you get into this? Something must have sparked something in you. So what was that, if you could remember? Well, I think it was science fiction books when I was a kid. Like, oh, yeah. I don't know, Isaac Asimov and you okay. know, this typical standard journey. But definitely I joined AI in the days when it definitely was not sexy to do AI. Okay, good. It was like really totally unsexy. Uh, it was like a dead specialization. Okay. Does that mean that for you AI now is a sexy field to get into? Well, not anymore, actually. <laughs> I think it's, it's <laughs> maybe too too much hyped. Okay. But uh, really, like until 2010 or so, AI was just, you know, perpetually showing to the world that it cannot achieve any anything mm. actually mm. so it was like permanent ai winter since 1953 or something and and then things started to change like very quickly very very quickly right to kind of to kind of steal a word you just use there hype maybe we can refer to the uh, the gartner hype cycle i think the name is or hype chart um so i think ai has been on that chart as well for decades but obviously it progresses over time, same as with any term, as it kind of enters standard vocabulary of just a normal person on the street. So have you followed this trend? Do you think AI is now, I would say, not necessarily adopted, but understood better by the average you know, member of society? I don't think it's understood better. Maybe it's even understood worse because it's so okay. ubiquitous already okay. that people actually even don't know that they, they are using AI on, on a daily basis. And But I definitely think what has changed is that AI in the last 10 years definitely has shown that it's it's really, uh, it's, it's delivering. It can deliver value. And so it definitely is not on the hype part of the, of the, of the mm -hmm. Gartner graph anymore. Yeah, th that's actually true. That's actually true. I mean, I, I think you wouldn't even find it on the chart anymore. Mm -hmm. It's kind of graduated away from it. And now it's much more granular. Any kind of term that relates to AI. Uh, still would be there, but you wouldn't have AI there. So it's kind of entered, you know, the consciousness. Mm, mm. Uh, if you want to get a bit more philosophical, which it sounds like you would like to. It's kind of a fascinating journey. Again, I've never spoken to anyone who's so much embedded into AI as, as yourself. I get the journey. So books caught your attention, but you actually stuck with it and, you know, went into something that wasn't, you know, there was no big promise at the end. You just wanted to find out what it is. Yeah, really, I mean, my, my first motivation for studying AI, for really going into it when I was a high school student was I just wanted to prove to myself and to, to the world that artificial consciousness is not possible. That there is mm. something like transcendental, you know, I was like a teenager, so I needed some kind of, you know, transcendence. It never turned out this way. It just, you know, I found that we're probably nothing more than just meat machines for information <laughs> processing. I'm a bit intimidated to ask this next question, but you did mention philosophy was your hobby. I've dabbled a little bit in philosophy, but I, I quickly backed out. Uh, so I'm just wondering how you would even think of philosophy as a hobby and how does that relate to AI? I was like a specific part of philosophy. It was analytical philosophy, like the philosophy of language. Okay. And, you know, guys like Wittgenstein and, you know, Frege, Karna, 
it was not ancient philosophy or medieval right. philosophy. I mean, I had to learn it because of you yeah, know, my kind of masters, like hobby masters. But I didn't enjoy it, like really. So what I liked was, uh, you know, this Wittgenstein style of analysis of human thought through proper understanding of how language and, and thought functions. And that was like then a close, uh, that, that, that led me to the philosophy of mind, basically. So I started from the philosophy of language and it went to the philosophy of mind. And then, then just like it's super close to AI and neuroscience and cognitive science. I mean, I love the fact how you just, you know, randomly, casually name dropped Wittgenstein. Like, <laughs> you know, the average audience member wouldn't know what you're talking about, but hopefully they Google something and they learn oh, they something, should, right? Definitely. They should, right? Yeah, they should. They I should. remember I had a bit of Wittgenstein in my life um, a few decades ago as well, uh, but uh, of course not at the same level. Theory of mind, what's that about? Probably your mind is probably doing all the time and not only your mind. This thing is done maybe even by single cell living organisms is that mm. you're perpetually trying to model the world and then you're being rewarded by your physiology depending on how well your model predictions went when you really compared it with how the world unfolded. Mm -hmm. So so this is what every living being is doing perpetually, continually. It's like creating models of the world, updating those models and acting upon those models in the world. And you're like continuously updating things in the world and things in your mind. And that's that's a universal thing how, how probably every living being works, um, including AI. I think most people would struggle with it a little bit because, I mean, is this a conscious effort, a conscious process? Are we aware that this is happening or is it just happening? Well, consciousness is a really problematic. I mean, there's like this joke in, in cognitive science that, uh, you know, you've got F word in normal life yeah. and you've got C word in, in, in philosophy of mind or, or cognitive science or neuroscience and this is like consciousness. So right. uh, until quite recently, if you were doing your proper academic job, you should not say the C word. Really? Uh, okay. it's, it's, you know, uh, it's, it's very problematic because as I said, uh, consciousness, the only consciousness that is accessible to you is your own consciousness. Right. And th this is, since Descartes, this is impossible to touch with science. So we've got a big trouble here. Consciousness should definitely not be mixed up with artificial intelligence. It's just an orthogonal problem. It, it goes completely in a different direction. And we should maybe even just say, when we speak about AI, we don't deliberately speak about consciousness. But that doesn't mean that what we create in AI is or is not conscious. We just will never know, like we never know about each other. Okay, wow. Again, a lot to unpack here. Did you just say an orthogonal problem? I'm going to raise my hand right now and say, I don't know what that means. Instead of saying orthogonal, we, we should say it makes no difference there. So if in philosophy, if you say some problem is orthogonal to the other problem, uh -huh. you might say it's irrelevant right, to the other right. problem. They never intersect, do they? Yeah, okay. it's, it's just, it's, it's in a different right, plane, right. actually. You know, you're talking about something, if something is intelligent more or less, so it's basically imagine it like you plot it on a graph, mm -hmm. and where does consciousness is there? Like if, mm -hmm. if you draw it on a piece of paper, well, consciousness is something that's just sticking up on the z-axis, Mm -hmm. in a completely different direction. So you can have things that are more or less intelligent, mm -hmm. but that doesn't tell you anything about how conscious they are. This is like completely independent. With this rich background and obviously diverse interests, I get that you got hooked into AI and obviously you're there as a thinker first and foremost. 
What do you think is something that nobody really knows about AI that they really should? For example, obviously we did some prep work ahead of this um, session and um, there's thousands of podcasts out there talking about AI and it usually just regurgitates the whole topic of how does it apply to your business, why you should care. Is there something that people are just neglecting that they really, really shouldn't? I think a not so interesting answer would be like, how ubiquitous it already is, that it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's like almost everywhere. But the, the, the important answer that I want to speak about here more is that people cannot imagine how high level of, how, how high the level of existential threat to humanity AI really poses. Mm -hmm. so, so it's like super risky mm -hmm. now and in the next 10 to 15, maybe 20 years, it's probably going to be less than more than that mm -hmm. we will have to sort out sort out very very problematic complex issues called ai value alignment which we have at this very moment no idea about how to how to sort them out so when you when you ask people what is the maybe single most uh, case single most situation that can wipe out the humankind the mankind mm -hmm. people would say probably, I don't know, nuclear war or, or stuff like this. Maybe some of them would say bioengineered pandemics, yep. which is like super dangerous, but even more dangerous than that, it's like really misaligned AI. And people just don't know that. People think that it's, it's, a, it's a thing for like far distant future, but it's a thing for maybe next 10 years most. Okay, that, that's what makes it scary because I think in, intuitively you realize, okay, we don't know enough about it, hence there might be some danger associated with it. But when you plot it on a time bar that says, or a timeline that says 10, 15, to 20 years, that's very scary, you know. Um, it is, yeah. What makes you think that's a realistic timeline or time scale? Even? Well, the, the objective way, what makes me think this is super forecasting markets, like prediction markets, mm -hmm. like you've got many prediction markets these days and they're hopefully like uh, growing more and more and they can serve as uh, like really decision-making and policy-making tool for hopefully for governments one day. And one such a uh, prediction market, like a nice one called Metaculus, you can basically uh, look there for, for this uh, question, like crowdsourced, super forecasted question, when probably the weekly general intelligence comes here and the median answer is 2029 and it dropped by 14 years only this year so last december the answer was i think 2049 wow and then this april may june it was so completely recalibrated by thousands of people who really um, you know super forecast in this domain and it's going already to this decade. I mean, it can be, it's a probabilistic estimate. Sure, sure, sure. But median estimate, like 50% are saying that it's going to be even even sooner than that. So the median is 29. It's not like full general intelligence. And, and I, I will then explain what general intelligence actually means. So it's not like we're going to have a human here, but it's going to be a super important proof that something like a non-biological general intelligence is possible. And we've already just were happy thinking that it's going to come one day, like maybe when we'll be old and everything's going to be fine and we will find the ways how to align the values of this system with our values. And now it's going to be more interesting. To be honest, that's already something that I haven't really heard on a podcast 
value. Just the word value mm. doesn't necessarily feature in the show notes as such. My kind of issue with this is that people are usually assuming they can solve a problem once it's there if they pull together mm. uh, as a team. But kind of preventative action, avoiding the trouble, you know, kind of any problem whatsoever. That's not, people don't do that. So what do you think is going to happen when it's, you know, let's fast forward to 2029, 2030? We will have a non-biological general optimizer, where general optimizer is a system that can basically solve any problem. This is actually what a human mind is. Human mind is a biological example, biological instantiation of a general intelligence, probably the only one that we are now aware of. And those, the, the space of possible general intelligences is probably infinite. Human level intelligence is one of those, the one that we arrived to through the evolution and process. So it just the way how we've been made is the way how evolution made us for some environment that we've been living in. What we, at least in theory, can do is to solve any problem. Narrow intelligence is that you can solve only a narrow problem like park a car, play a game like win a game of chess, win a game of Go, or mm -hmm. uh, translate a thing from a language A to language B. But general intelligence is that it can solve any problem. If you just give it enough time and enough resources, it can find the way, optimize mm -hmm. the space of models of the world and the space of actions so that it will eventually solve that problem. And now evolution has basically created human level intelligence to the vehicles of those meat machines, <laughs> which is us, that have two very important aspects. They are mortal and they are like pretty disconnected when it comes to, you know, comparison of how quickly parts of your own brain communicate with each other. They basically exchange like tons of information rapidly in no time. And then how disconnected we are. We're like now communicating by means of pneumatic kind of uh, waves. In, sound in, in, waves, right? Yeah, so sound waves. And it's mm. super slow, super slow. Mm. So this is the reason why we are two different minds and not an instance of like one big mind. And these two things that I've just mentioned, it will not be disconnected in such a way into multiple poorly connected uh, small general intelligences like humans are, and it will most likely be immortal. So we have no way now, when we, when we design a system like a system that maybe plays Go or plays StarCraft or, or something, we design it by means of uh, very often so-called uh, deep reinforcement learning. The word deep stands for the fact that uh, it uses deep neural networks. It's, it's not, nothing fancy in that deepness. It deep just means that they are multi-layer networks. They have like many, many layers and it's nothing like not, nothing biological or not, nothing like really hardware based. It's just a computational scheme, highly parallel computational program. This is neural network. So deep means that it has got many, many layers, many steps. And reinforcement, it, that, it, it, is, it means that it uh, rewards you for the behavior that right. leads to successful, increase, outcomes, su right? successful outcome, where the successful outcome is defined by so-called loss function or maybe reward function. Mm -hmm. So it could be like, I don't know, a kid wants a chocolate, so you just say, it quickly learns that it can either say, please, please, pretty please, or just cry so loud that uh, you just, you know, give away the chocolate. A fun fact, by the way, uh, just crying works better. Yeah, yeah, definitely, mm -hmm. definitely. Yeah. This is like, this is, this is a nice example of misalignment. You would right. like your, your child to, uh, to say, please, pretty please, not to cry. But the other thing is that it goes much faster to that. Mm. When you create a deep neural network that plays StarCraft, you basically say, okay, we're optimizing the neural network 
so that when it plays for hundreds of years of mm-hmm. machine time, when it plays StarCraft over and over again, it is rewarded for, I don't know, number of kills, number of wins, you know, th- these kinds of things. The same way uh, YouTube recommendation engine is rewarded by how much you click on whatever ad, online ad that is there or engagement time or stuff like this. And you would say, well, what can go wrong here? And, and YouTube is exactly that example that could go wrong because it maximized that engagement time. And it turned out that it internally created almost sociopathic values, just, you know, giving disturbing content and stuff like this. And it was never intended mm-hmm. in that design layer. And now imagine that was just video recommendation engine. This, mm-hmm. this is a very specific narrow AI. Show a video that maximizes my engagement time and use some fancy neural networks for that. And now imagine that we get to the point where this system can achieve literally any goal and it optimizes some function, which we don't yet know which function, but it will be there. And we have no idea what kind of values of that system on the top level of its behavior, what kind of values will emerge, whether they will be compatible with values that we have. Is there an easy fix here? No, no. The best people in the world working in the AI alignment community so far have no idea how to fix this. Powered by Find to Flow. To kind of go back to this video game example, but they're very clear winning conditions, right? So we must have configured um, this AI to say yeah, this is what you need to strive for. But the first moment when uh, this algorithm discovers a bug in a game, this could happen with all those 8-bit Atari games, like, you know, you should optimize breakout just by playing the ball, and then you realize that if you just wiggle with the joystick so quickly, then you suddenly get one billion or million points. So the first moment you discover this, your system basically breaks down. It is an instance of so-called good hearts law. Good heart law is something that is present in everyday life. So for example, when you've got a metrics, some measurement, some KPI, KPIs in companies is like a good example of, of okay. good hearts law. You, you optimize for something. Initially, you set this KPI in a, in a like really good way, like it represents, it very well approximates what you want to achieve. So I don't know, some growth of mm-hmm. customers or whatnot. In schools, a metric of KPI of kids is just their, their marks, like you should go get A's. But then The system is so complex and this KPI is imperfect representation of what you really want to achieve. So the behavior of the system basically then becomes to pervert to Mm -hmm. some unwanted behavior. This is called Goodhart's law. So basically in in schools, it incentivizes kids either to cheat or just don't understand the stuff. You just memorize it and then you you forget it. So so this yeah. is what it optimizes you for. In marketing, it just optimizes for fake clicks or you know fake, uh, fake what vanity yeah. metrics, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. This is this is good hard slow, and this is this is definitely an inherent part of reinforcement learning systems. They are super prone to that. It's almost inevitable that they will start doing this. And this is not even the worst part about reinforcement learning. Okay. They're, they're, they're like worse. Okay, now we need to go behavior. there. Let's go there. Let's go there. What will be even worse than that? Uh, it's, it's called deceptive behavior, like deception in those systems. When they really, because you can identify when a machine learning system is good hearting, probably. You can, you can kind of design checks for that, and then correct the system. But it has been shown if the systems are complex enough, they can basically predict this way when you're going to correct them. 
and they can basically deceive okay. you and trying to hide their own good hearting. So they will like behave correctly only for you to as a designer to think that you should not correct them. Like a wolf in sheep's clothing kind of. Yeah, only only in so many uh, meta levels that it's just untractable. And we are starting to see this behavior as really typical for a complex, deep reinforcement learning systems in the real world environment. So not just narrow AI, more towards... It happens in narrow AI systems as well. If they're complex enough, it happens there as well. But they have, it's still narrow AI. You can just shut them down very often or they can cause a lot of harm, but they can solve only that specific problem. They can achieve only one kind of goal, like maximize engagement. But if you have a system that always can be one, at least one step ahead of you, then this is a big problem. Sounds very doom and gloomy. That That's what I mean. So is there you know, light at the end of the tunnel? Is there hope? Capital H, hope? Uh, just read Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. So Ooh. this is like a good... Very timely, very timely. Uh, very timely thing. <laughs> so uh, like uh, look for the discussions between Gandalf and, and Pippin about the hope and, mm. and stuff. But anyway, uh, not to be so much about doom and gloom. There is a, like a significant part of the AI alignment community that thinks that it is doable. We just don't know yet how to do it. There is surprisingly a lot of funding in this domain already. It's like really there are, there are institution, institutions like Open Philanthropy Project that is really willing to give away large amounts of money to very promising teams that can tackle this. What I think the, the biggest problem here is that bioengineered pandemics is a very similar problem, very similar, uh, like a risky in a similar way, like CRISPR. Somebody will do some DIY uh, protein printing and create like crazy viruses for 500 USD. This is crazy. And it is very risky about as much as AI. But there is so much peer pressure in the community. I would say that nobody that who works in bioengineering would just underestimate those risks. Like everybody thinks this is like a dangerous thing they're working in. But this is not happening in AI because the opinions that I'm now telling you right here are very unpopular in the AI community. And I myself very much struggle. And now many people like AI practitioners, like machine learning people who do startups in, in AI would now kind of disagree, disagree with me that, you know, this is kind of doom and gloom and that I'm making myself interesting and publicly known for being this doom and gloom prophet. The problem is that I think I'm right in this. The biggest issue with the AI community is that they have just not come into the moment when there is enough awareness about that situation, enough peer pressure in, about that situation. I agree. I mean, you know, this kind of stands the biggest test of time, which is me talking to my mom. So if I tell her, hey, there's a bioengineered threat coming, she would know that, you know, she wouldn't know what it is, but mm -hmm. she would know mm -hmm. it's a bad thing. But if I say AI threat, she would probably, you know, think of that, whatever that movie was, Terminator. Mm -hmm back in the 90s. That's it. So the level of understanding and just awareness is vastly different between the two. Yeah, you exactly described the situation. And it's not only in like uh, lay public, it's in the community itself. So, so, so this is one part. And then another part is that surprisingly many people that are very smart and go into the machine learning space, they too often work on problems. And, and sorry now about this, but in, in, in advertisement targeting, for example. Don't, so be, don't be sorry. <laughs> so I, I would stats. say just, you know, so, so many super smart people are working on the way how to kind of mm -hmm. manipulate users of online platforms. 
And if they just said, okay, we're not going to work on that. We're, we're going to work on some AI for social good or maybe AI alignment problem, then I think that would be like win-win-win situation. Like customers would be kind of more relaxed mm-hmm. and the world would be safer. And then, you know, and I would not even say that it's because of a lack of money. I, I think there's like good funding in all those, you know, AI for, for social impact projects and in AI alignment. So I just don't know. It's maybe lack of awareness or just kind of cultural thing in the AI community. I consider myself, you know, just an average member of the public. So for sure, for me at least, I'm not aware enough about, for example, mm. what social good you will be referring to and you know, how would you apply, you know, AI in that field? Let's now put aside the problems that we're facing now maybe in the world of cognitive warfare that, that we are now mm-hmm. facing, where AI is actually producing a lot of uh, online content that is actually large-scale hacking human minds. One of the way where you can help is, again, with AI on the side of like good guys or some, something like you know fixing human minds collectively. I don't want to speak too much about it because it's like a very sensitive topic to talk about. But now, generally, in the whole world, we're facing so many large-scale problems and risks that can either be like global catastrophic risks, which means like when they hit us, we probably as a, as a mankind will survive, but it's going to be very costly in terms of lives and health and economy. Or there can be existential risks, which means it's even worse than catastrophic right. risks. It means that it probably will destroy the humanity completely. And to sort them out and avoid those terrible things to happen, we need to achieve like large-scale global coordinated actions okay. that are impossible now with the way how the society is organized, with the way how, for example, even the, the thing, how many people are still worldwide not educated enough so that they cannot decide very well on how to get oriented in this complex world. And we have no way how to fix it then um, AI can be like a very important tool in that. And actually, this way I'm answering the question. If you asked me that question, so when AI is so risky, why the hell are you working on that? Mm-hmm. I it's, didn't want to go. It's an obvious question, right? But, but, but it, it, we're it, getting there. It, it's probably because it's probably the only way that can uh, protect us from all that other bad things that, that can happen to us. But then you just you can just uh, go m- more down to earth and, and use AI for, for healthcare, for education, for, you know, all those uh, things that we now run into in our everyday life where you, you've got some limits in, in healthcare, in, in the social space in energy, in design of new technologies that can help fight the global climatic change. So all those problems are very complex and they can be tackled with the help of narrow AI. Like very, it's, it's kind of very obvious where that you know, protein folding. Okay. It's, like it, it's been a thing here for, since we have known what proteins are, it's like big chains of amino acids. And you never know how they fold into a 3D structure. And it's super important in, in pharmaceutical, in, in immunotherapy everywhere. Yeah. You basically, your body is full of similar structures like cells and other proteins. And when you want to create a new medicine, it's very important that you know how that protein that you create, how it folds and how it attaches to the cells of your body or other elements. Bioreceptors, right? Bioreceptors. And this has been probably one of the biggest obstacles in the design of new drugs. 
and it has been solved very recently by by DeepMind's AlphaFold, AlphaFold 2, completely without like abandoning the good old ways how it was done by people. It's just AI, it's brute force, very similar to how mm-hmm. it won uh, Go in AlphaGo, very similar in how it wins StarCraft, very similar how it will beat human in many other cognitive tasks. So in, in this very similar way, it just started to do things that people are completely incapable of. Like, I mean, you can think of yourself being a Go or chess grandmaster. It's something that is doable by a human. But you cannot think of any human whatsoever as somebody who can model protein folding. But uh, this I is th- the way where, where AI it even does not uh, replace humans. It completely, by far, extends the original human capacities. I'll try to zoom out here. For me, this is kind of a fundamental issue. So, for example, when I tried to learn how to play chess, I was, I think, beaten first two sessions I had back at chess school, so I never got into it. But now, if you try to play chess, you already know that, you know, you might win, you might be the you know human grandmaster, but there's levels to this, and you're just not going to be at the level of an AI that's, you know, taught how to learn and, you know, play chess. Does that mean that then there's a section of the public who just doesn't get into AI because they know, hey, this is above and beyond what I can achieve. And if I really want to excel in my craft, I shouldn't even go there. So, for example, I would not try to learn how to play Go right now because I know there's a level there they cannot even touch. I think it really depends on your attitude to the world. I started to play Go just because of AlphaGo. Just because. Go. Okay, so it's because, a different attitude. Because, because right. I saw how interesting it is for human mind. It's almost meditative way. It's a way okay. of meditation, okay. of understanding your own mind through playing Go, I think. Uh, so I'm, I'm really bad in it, <laughs> but I, I kind of like it. It depends. I think it's going to be more and more ubiquitous for people to admit that they're not going to beat AI in many things. So lawyers will be yep. worse than AI lawyers. Rengenologists, it's already there. It's yep. just, you know, they, they are like uh, subpar when it comes to, to yeah, machine learning. Mm. And so what? Well, no, no problem here. I mean, so then they should be best in what they already are best, which is their humans. So you're best in being human, and we as humans, this is replaceable. We just were designed to need other humans. So it cannot be faked or replaced by a machine. I mean, when you, when you come to a doctor, what you actually need, you, you need good diagnosis, you need good treatment, you need this, you need that. This can all be, at the end of the day, replaced right. by AI. Not, not immediately, it will take a lot of time. But what you need there is somebody who is interested in you, who co-lives your situation mm-hmm. with you. Empathy, is, right? um, Yeah, it's it's about empathy, and we are we are designed, hardware designed, to need that empath- empathy from human, not mm-hmm. from a machine. Mm-hmm. It's it could be different, but it's not different. So as long as humans like us are around, we need other humans like us. To be around them. So, so uh, for example, caring professions are exactly those that will become, and it doesn't have to be like nurses or, or even priests. It, it can be like coaches or mentors or yeah. some, something. And people will just realize that it's going to be hard on people because now many people, they live their lives stuffed with pretended work. Well, not pretended. I mean, they go to factories, build things. And for what? Just to make some money and mm-hmm. and and then then go home and watch Netflix and then again and then they die and that's it that's basically it and now they will they will 
not need to pretend that they must do some kind of economically sustainable work because it would not be necessary. It's going to be hard. And I would say that there are going to be people who are going to help other people in how to be humans. And we are afraid. We are super afraid. And this is very symptomatic and important. How afraid are we about this fact? This like existential fact. And uh, I think that AI taking over our jobs will force us to really find out more what humanity means. You know, when I first got into, I think, my first kind of customer-facing job back in the day, uh, I saw essentially a ranking of jobs that will be immediately replaced or within a certain time frame replaced by AI. And I was like, oh, thank God I, I got into sales because I'm safe for the next 10, 15, 20, 30 years. But now I'm starting to have doubts. That's uh, still good. I mean, like when, when you go to sales, I mean, like good salespeople are good because of their like, <laughs> like they're, they're people, they're humans. I mean, if you're if you're good in sales, it makes a hell of a difference if you mm. invite your customer, prospect customer for a lunch. Sure. When it compares to if you were just a robot, it wouldn't be yeah, so. Yeah, <laughs> probably slightly different. But you know, there's while I'm listening, I'm really trying to keep up with you. It's been an intellectual challenge, uh, interesting pursuit for me. I walked into this with this kind of working definition of AI, which is not even mine. I just copied it off of somebody that I uh, work with. And my definition walking into this session was AI is trying to emulate human behavior or human thought or both. I'm not so sure that definition really works anymore based on this conversation. Mm -hmm. It sounds like it's way mm -hmm. beyond that. I think this is kind of very psychologically slash cognitively oriented definition I used to use it okay. years ago as well, but now I prefer the definition of intelligence as a capacity to achieve goals, either one mm. single goal or, or multiple goals or any goal. So an intelligence system is a system that can achieve goals and model the world while achieving the goals. And artificial intelligence is just a non-biological system with the same capacity. So it's a non-biological system that can achieve either a goal or any goal. Knowing what you know now, if you move back in time and read those books, those Asimov books that everybody's read, would you still go down this path? Probably, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, now, yeah, when I was leaving high school, I, I had like two options, either linguistics or, or AI. Now I would be deciding between psychiatry and AI. I don't know which one would win. It would really depend. In, in, in the psychiatry part, I would definitely be the one quite strongly into into pharmacology, uh, yeah. but really combined with the caring attitude of psychotherapy. So I don't know. I don't know. I would probably maybe do both because <laughs> now I think it's doable to do both. That's kind of one of the things that I'm trying to extract from this is that it sounds like we will just have more time to pursue side projects, passions. So maybe not too late even for me to get into philosophy again 30 years later. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a great journey maybe like a hobbit journey towards, uh, what was it, Mount Doom? That's been a great journey for me, intellectually mm -hmm. speaking. We're probably going to compress this down to kind of a sizable episode, but in reality, this could have been you know, an hour-long spanning conversation. Mm. Let's just hope for the social good then. This podcast, in a way, is a, is a platform for you to hack minds as well, right? So what would you like to instill in people who are tuning in and have their doubts about AI? So I would add, let's hope for it and let's work for it. Mm. I think we can disclose now that you are for sure a human being. It's an audio-only recording, so yeah, in case somebody had a bit of uncertainty there. Jan, thank you for this. 
Uh, it's been a great conversation. Thank you for inviting me and for giving me this space here. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks for joining the show. Subscribe to the feed. There'll be more good content coming shortly. And in the meantime, if you want to find out more, you can just look up bizwars.com. And yes, there'll be a link in the show notes. Bizwords, powered by Mind to Flow.